0: Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. We are cranking the show up to 11. Uh, My name (laughs) is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob.
1: Hello, Joe.
0: It has been a wonderful weekend, and now on the start of a new week. It is so cold in Georgia. It is weird. I don't know why, but... I, this time of year I know I'm not drinking hot tea but I'm st- I want to get like all bundled up in like three
1: quilts. This is one of the coolest Aprils I remember and it's just now I mean it was, you know in the 70s yesterday it's plummeting down to under 50 probably. So what is happening?
0: It was in the 40s last night. Yeah. It's just not right. And like we went out to this beautiful gardens called Gibbs Gardens. earlier today beautiful place uh, very expansive all in all it was about a three mile walk from the far into the gardens back to the car and beautiful scenery but it was hard you know we're there for the flowers we're there for the the manicured trees and beautiful creeks and ponds but it was chilly and we thought that we, our body temperature would warm up and we'd be okay. But it just never really got any better. We, we were a little shivering when we got back into the car.
1: It feels like October. It looks I, like I, spring I love, and it feels like October. October is my favorite. but you Yes. Just, I'm just not ready. And it was just kind of weird. I'm sure this has happened every year of my life. I just don't remember the weather being like this at this time in Georgia.
0: I don't. And I have a pretty good track record of remembering because my birthday is in the middle of April. And if anyone should know, I should know. Yeah. And it's never like this. And
1: yet one of my cousins was showing the you know six or eight inches of snow on her porch railing just last week, upstate New York. That's awesome.
0: We didn't get any snow this year that I can recall. No. And I, I miss snow. Sad. We got all the cold weather, but no snow. What have you been up to?
1: Well, I spent the weekend doing all sorts of things. I finished up one beehive and that was exciting. Mm, so I'm good, Sitting good. on my front porch right now. And then, in some extra little spare moments of sitting down, I did a lot of genealogy. Genealogy? Yeah, I was digging into some of the records in the old countries. And it's really kind of cool because with Google Translate and with open access stuff that's just on websites already, I, mean, I can read in Dutch now and I can read in Norwegian.
0: Okay. So, and what
1: are you doing with these languages? Well, I'm tracking down some of the old family members. Oh, I got you. And the Norwegian records are cool because they went and the the country grabbed all the old church records and digitized them. And since Norway hasn't been burned down with a giant war in the last thousand years, they've got some really good records. And I've got some families or I've actually been able to find the little white church where my great grandfather was born, baptized, where his parents were married, where his father was married. And so all these you know generations of, of records in this one little teeny place in this little valley, thirty miles from the southern coast of Norway, in the middle of absolute nowhere. Wow! And I can read the records. Yeah. Because you learn fifteen or twenty words, and they almost sound English. Ah, oh, okay. You know, like you know, far as father and more as mother. Oh, and the, cool, <laughs> the coolest one I found. I'm looking at this word. It's, it sounds like true love. <laughs> true love. No, true love. It's the witness at a wedding. Oh, interesting! And so, oh, these are people that these people knew. And sometimes it's my great 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 grandfather. Oh, he was at nice. his kid's wedding. Of oh course. man! Nice. So, and in the Dutch records, even better. I'm going to it, have to use that by the way. That is a great term. The true love. The like true love. Yeah, I like yeah. that. But the Dutch records, the um, most women in Dutch society kept their name. They didn't take on their husband's name. Does that present a challenge? No, it's great. Because it allows you to track the female side like you can't do in most other cultures. Nice. Most of my lineages, when there's a dead end, it's because there's a lady. I know her first name and her last name is the name of her husband. You can't track that. You can't go beyond that. You're kind of stuck.
0: What were the cultural reasons for why they didn't change their names? I don't know. I don't know either.
1: I don't know. But they also, just like in Norway... In the Netherlands, especially in, in Friesland, up in the northern part of the Netherlands, where I'm looking, they tended to name their child after the father. Okay. So like Jensen, the son of Jens. Ah, uh, yeah. Or Jens, I guess. There's no J. In anyway, And so you're able to look at genealogies and family records and just go up generations and have such wonderful records all the way back to, you know, early 1800s. It's Oh, Some wow. of them I got down to the 1600s in one branch in, in the Netherlands.
0: Any particular revelations?
1: Oh, yeah. My great-grandmother, W-E-I-B-R-I-G-J-E, Vibriga, something like that. I, I've tried to pronounce yeah. it. And I've had someone who f- is from there try to teach me how to pronounce it. And I keep flailing. I can't do it. Huh. Her father and mother, I found this record with this. So, 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 so. Her father and mother would be my great-great-grandparents. My great-great-great-grandparents. Are in a record, and all four of their names are there on both sides of the family, but the children are different. Oh, my great great grandfather's brother married a sister in law. Oh, Her two brothers married two sisters, and that messes up all the genetics. Oh, so if I'm on 20 and you know, 23me.com, I've got a lot of relatives from Holland. Explain why that messes up the genetics because all of us have a double dose. Yeah, all these double first cousins. When you look at the genetics, they say, oh, you're this many generations apart. Actually, no, we're more than that. But we have more DNA in common than we should. Oh! Because the one brother came to America and the other brother stayed behind. And the one sister came to America and the other sister stayed behind. But their children are like brother and sister, even though they're cousins.
0: Yeah. So it really, the same issue would arise today if the same thing happened today. Two sisters marrying two brothers. And it happens.
1: Wow. But I couldn't believe I found a record of this entanglement in my family tree. That's got to be pretty rare.
0: We were thinking about, my wife and I were talking about some friends that ran into the same arrangement recently. Hmm. Interesting stuff.
1: And I know um, a girl in college, she was always very self-conscious about it, but her mom had died and her dad had married her aunt. So he married his wife's sister, Oh, okay. which, you know, it's common enough. It's not like that never happened, but she was always, yeah. you know, I am my own cousin. She was always very <laughs> self-conscious about this.
0: <laughs> was she like a, a teenager or a preteen when it happened? I I'm could see, sure. I could I, I understand the 18, right circumstance 19, like that that would make how, you pretty self-conscious. Yeah. Oh, come on. That, that's not even a problem to be truthful. So uh, we wanted to talk about your background this episode. A little different. You know, everybody's wondering, who is this Dr. Robert Carter? I mean, we've, we've already listened to you for what, like 10 episodes? And we don't even know who this guy is. We started our journey with Isaac Newton. We learned about him. We don't care about him. We want to hear about Dr. Robert Carter. We want Charles Darwin? Forget it. We want to know
1: who this guy is. Only if the conversation is more science than it is biography.
0: Oh, okay. But that being said, we talked for uh, the last six minutes about
1: your biography and your family. tree. No, Okay, okay, fair enough. In truth, though,
0: you're a scientist, and we talk a lot about history, and we do talk a lot about uh, your interest in sciences in general that aren't always your field. So I wanted you to... Take the mic and describe yourself, explain yourself. And how did you become a marine biologist?
1: The reason that we have all these subjects that don't seem to be related is because you and I... Oh, they are totally related. Well, yeah, in in a lot of different ways, but there's not like a... Yeah, not obvious, It's not a one-subject podcast here. It's because you and I are both interested in so many different things.
0: We work in an organization that dabbles in a lot of science topics.
1: I have been a science geek nerd since I can remember. Always been just really, really interested in how things work, why things work, really small things, really big things, really fast things just because it's cool and they are they are that's why we have a podcast science is cool i ended up at georgia tech as a biology major very strangely not an engineering major i'm um, not even sure how exactly it happened it's just one day i just got this thing in the mail and said hey dad i want to go to georgia tech really you just yeah. got the itch to do
0: it when we get that desire we cannot explain to yeah do something but i lived
1: a thousand miles away oh really yeah so then why I-
0: georgia tech I don't know. It was a total whim. The marketing in that letter must have been pretty good.
1: I was looking at all sorts of local schools and, you know, Rochester Institute of Technology and, you know, up New New England, New York, Midwest, Farest, you know, Purdue, maybe the farthest away that I applied to. And I got into a lot of colleges, but... I don't know. Something about Georgia. Just, I think I'm going to go there. I think it sounds like an adventure. As a young
0: man, yeah. you were attracted to, you know, seeing new worlds and strange civilizations going where no Robert Carter had gone before.
1: What's weird though, is I had become, I know during this transition, I became a landlubber. Okay. I grew up on the coast. I mean, I grew up with a boat basin in my backyard because my parents owned a marina. Nice. <laughs> I mean, I grew up on the water. Does that explain the marine biologist? Later on. Okay. Later on, I had taken a, um, a joint enrollment course with a local college my senior year, which is a marine biology uh, program. And I really liked it, but it was just science because I was also taking physics. And I love physics, as you can tell from the podcast. And I, I don't know. I just decided I was going to take biology because my, my best grades in, in high school were in my biology class and marine biology. I just aced them. English, not so much. <laughs> no, not even close. Anyway, <clears throat> that's not science about. anyway. No, we don't talk about English. I had to learn how to read and write later on in life, shall we say. <laughs> when my guidance counselor was very mad at me um, when my SAT scores came back because my English and math scores are only 10 points apart.
0: Oh,
1: and he says, Rob, we have a problem. I said, what's that? He goes, you make straight A's in math and you make straight C's in English. <laughs> Why are your points so close? I, said, I don't know. <laughs> oh i think it's just lazy yeah
0: speaking for myself i knew my way around photoshop when i was 12 but i don't think i read any books that decade (laughs) i'm like i'd read a chapter now and then because i had to but i don't think i finished any books over 100 pages long a couple of years later i wrote my own fiction though oh yes cool i got into that i was a homeschooler
1: ah yes the old prodigal homeschooler Mm -hmm. coming back to love of learning. I honestly, I was nearly 20 years old where the love of learning kicked in.
0: It was gradual for me too. And honestly, a lot kicked into high gear for me around the same time.
1: If it had happened earlier, I would have had much better grades and I probably would have been an engineer. So I didn't get into Georgia Tech's engineering program. My grades in high school weren't high enough. And so they gave me, you know, I was a provisional student. And it was while I was there, I got challenged by one person in particular who well, I won't mention, um, but one person a student in particular, or a teacher, a student who was also a co worker because I worked at the uh, state EPD alternate semesters. To pay my way through college and i remember one day you know he's a nerd and i was a nerd and he was challenging me on stuff i didn't know and he walks up to me slaps a piece of paper on the desk he goes rob all 50 states and capitals go uh, but why would you need to know just a random thing okay. i had never studied geography and I, I didn't i knew nothing in fact there's 100 answers right 50 states 50 capitals i got a 50 percent. college nerds are brutal and i was i was humiliated I miss like Nebraska, Iowa, you know, this whole strip of of, uh, yeah. of states. My, my United States was too, it wasn't wide enough. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I'd never been to those places. I have been there now. Sure. And so that semester, he and I memorized all the states, all the capitals, the Canadian provinces and territories, the Central American states and capitals, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia. And we ran out of semester when we got into the Pacific Islands.
0: Okay, can I inject here? Yeah. I was homeschooled, so I knew my way around geography. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we, what we did have was I, ha- I went to this friend's house while my parents went to a parent's homeschooling conference two years. And at this friend's house while we were there, uh, while well, my parents had the conference, we were at the friend's house. She had this smart electronic globe thing that a lot of homeschoolers probably had. But it was like a, a geography quiz trivia machine. And so cool. it was gamified and you like, you turn it on, bloop, 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 bloop. You know, do you want to be quizzed on America, the Americas, on the whole world, on certain continents? And I played that game and learned all of geography because of it. Cool. Uh, if you had had the same thing, I'm sure you would have known it like the back of your hand.
1: I would have eaten that up. It was a great time. After toy. I was 20. If I was 15 or 12, I would never have touched it.
0: Really? See, I was like nine years old and I loved it. It mm. was a pretty boring week, you know, at a girl's house.
1: What? You spent a boring week at a girl's house when you're nine? <coughs> yes. <coughs> what do you mean?
0: Well, my parents were at the conference and we were there at my friend's house. and
1: Oh, 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 okay. I see. Okay. I got it's it. not
0: like she had any pop guns. You know, <laughs> it, it was a girl <laughs> and she just had a playground in the backyard and this one toy globe.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry that you're so everything, scared.
0: Everything else in the bedroom is pink. <laughs>
1: That's awful. <laughs> sorry, <coughs> girls. I'm sure you love pink. Some guys do. No, I, I like pink now. <laughs> so here i am i'm being challenged intellectually for really the first time and i'm loving it i i started really getting especially the influence of this one person still i started getting hugely into military history and geography um and i'm a, a science major so i'm learning all stuff about biology and i'm loving it and all the other you know science classes that i had to take the one c that i made at georgia tech was in english so i actually missed highest honor because of one c Oh, wow. (laughs) Of course, if I had made an A where I made a B that, you know, I also would have gotten it, but that one English class, that just, that just sticks like a bone in my throat. Just grrr.
0: That's so not fair.
1: (laughs) But now I am an author and now I I know how to parse sentences and put periods in proper places, but it's been just a lot of work to get there.
0: I've read a lot of your articles. They're pretty good. I like them. I honestly enjoy reading them.
1: Yeah. I enjoy listening to you read them. (laughs) Right.
0: There'll be a link in the show notes.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So I'm done with Georgia Tech and I go to become a high school teacher. And I spent four years teaching high school. My first job out of college was teaching summer school chemistry. And I thought after three years of Georgia Tech chemistry, I made straight A's in organic chemistry. I loved it. Everyone else was like, this is terrible. But I loved organic. I didn't, I made B's and C's, A's and B's and the rest of the chemistries. I was like, I can handle it. No problem. And it almost killed me. Oh, <laughs> Summer school chemistry, I was cramming to two or three o'clock in the morning every night so I could walk in the classroom at eight o'clock in the morning, pretend I knew what I was talking about. But I learned it. Yeah. It's a different thing taking a test versus having to explain what it means to somebody. And I fell in love with teaching and I taught AP biology. I taught physics and chemistry and electronics for four years. And it it was a dream job.
0: I think that, that is the best way to teach is teach your students to be able to explain it to
1: somebody else. What I figured out was when I was able to explain it, that's when I knew it. Yeah. And if I couldn't explain it, I didn't, I did not know what what was going on.
0: I think that that helps students to appreciate that they actually accomplished something with any lesson of any yeah. subject. You said it was a hard summer, but that just makes so much sense. I mean, the sense of the accomplishment has to be out the wazoo.
1: Yeah, actually. We should do a show on chemistry. I love chemistry.
0: Yeah. Maybe Definitely, we'll,
1: we'll kill our audience, but who knows?
0: The queue is getting pretty big. We're going to put is. it down around uh, topic 26. Yeah. Okay. Chemistry.
1: And we're going to have other people, hey, you need to talk about this. So that'll that'll inflate the, the queue a little bit too. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's mm-hmm. always good to have have more materials that we can do.
0: Yeah. We'll have to figure out a way to do a poll with the audience and let them vote on what to move up in the queue.
1: Yeah. But now here's where the marine biology comes in. It was a long uh-huh. story to get to this point. Oh, yeah. While I was there. You the... met a mermaid. No, no mermaid. Oh, okay. The parents association bought a very large aquarium for my classroom and I put salt water in it and live rock and fish and corals. Mm. And that was my first saltwater aquarium. Later on, I I built an aquaculture facility at the university of Miami for Caribbean corals. So I had tens of thousands of gallons of salt water and thousands of coral colonies under my care eventually, but. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. At the time, it was one aquarium, and I'm asking questions. How does this work? What's that thing right there? You know, how da, 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 and all these questions. And I realized that a lot of the questions I was asking, no one knew the answer to. I said,
0: oh. So when you say nobody knew the answers, you mean nobody there did or no, nobody no really academically was, anywhere? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's questions that you could ask by staring at a saltwater aquarium that don't have an answer yet. What year was this? What time-ish? That was 90. I left in ninety six. Wow. To go to marine biology school at the University of Miami. Hmm. Well, What I figured out was I'm interested in too many things. My brain doesn't settle down on one subject easily.
0: That's one of the things that I was wondering was, how did you pick marine biology? Because science has so many interesting subjects.
1: I figured it would be interesting enough that I could study it for three or four or five years and I would survive and not be bored stiff. It took me eight and a half because I wasn't a scientist. I was a nerd. <laughs> There's a big difference. Oh. I didn't know how to do science. I knew how to take tests. Uh, I didn't know how to design an experiment. I didn't know how to run a, a program. I could follow a recipe. It, it, you know, at first, it was just classes. And I was taking classes. And I was doing great in my classes, but I was supposed to be starting my research program and I had no idea what to do or how to do it. And then my professor left in the middle.
0: <laughs> oh. Okay. But that was
1: the best thing that had happened. Oh, good. <laughs> because I was in the, the coral reef ecology program, but I was not a very good ecologist. And I was going, getting really frustrated with it because just theoretically, I wasn't doing well with thinking like ecologists think, but also numerically. They are coming up with numbers. They're trying to put numbers on God's creation. But creation is so incredibly complicated that most things defy easy numbers. What do you mean by numbers? Um, if I capture so many tons of fish— and you know, off the coast of Peru, every year, what's the carbon budget, and what's the population going to be the next year? Uh, that depends on the temperature. It depends on the, the the direction of the currents. It depends on a million things we don't know. And hmm. so they're doing all this modeling, all these complex ecosystems, and none of the models worked. Oh. And it was, and granted, you know, they're getting better and smarter. And but at the time, I was like, this is really ridiculous. Hmm. And so.
0: Ridiculous that y'all didn't know or ridiculous that they were even asking or?
1: I, I was getting frustrated in ecology because it wasn't a hard science. Hmm. It was too loosey goosey for me. And there was too many numbers I didn't know. Some people are really interested. Oh, we can get really get into this. And I was just like, I don't want to go there. But that was my academic program. And what was I going to do? Well, after I was left with no lab, no support, which wasn't you know bad, I still had an advisor and I still had, you know, office space in the laboratory, but I need to and reinvent myself. So I spent six months writing grant applications and the two applications on coral reef ecology didn't go through, but the one on genetics did. And it was actually funded through the university. I was working with corals. I, I was doing hundreds of scuba dives. It was a tough life. I mean, twist my arm. Got to go <laughs> down to Florida Keys again. And it was like three times a week, all summer long for four or five years. And it was just a dream job. It was wonderful, especially during coral reproduction season. It was an awful lot of work and it was very little sleep. But we <laughs> would go out before sunset and anchor and watch the sunset. Oh, And then... After the sun went down, we'd scuba dive. Because three hours after sunset, four, five, and six days after the full moon in August, the major species of coral on the reef would spawn. they release eggs into the water. Billions and billions of them. And then seven, eight, nine days, another massive species would spawn. And so we were out there collecting eggs and sperm and doing, you know, breaking colonies off and preserving them and looking at them under a microscope to see what the developmental stages were. And it was, it was really cool, but it was late night work. And then if they spawned, of course, you're trying to capture the fertilized eggs. And every year we tried to raise them and we always failed. Oh. Because a coral, I mean, a coral that could, you know, as big as your house starts out as something that looks like a speck.
0: That was always something I thought about nature documentaries, watching them growing up was I couldn't really appreciate the scale of the coral reefs and then they would like tighten in on a few fish that live in and around the coral in a a nook or cranny and then they would show this wider shot where you could see the depth of the ocean the coral with some depth but you couldn't really tell is that in yards or feet you could just couldn't tell yeah or if it was three stories deep or what
1: yeah you get you get lost with some of the the size even when you're up in the middle of it but you get used to it, and I could I would regularly see coral colonies bigger than me, regularly, all, all the time. In fact, one time, we, uh, the uh, Park Service had put a new buoy, a warning buoy, in what's called Hawk Channel, which is the, from Key Largo in the Florida Keys, offshore about five miles. That's where the reef is about five miles offshore. And between the reef and the shore is called Hawk Channel. And they put a new buoy in the channel and said, oh, there must be a patch reef there, a shallow spot that someone had run aground on. And so we suited up and jumped over with scuba. And it was just this huge coral colonies. I mean, all the way up to the water surface almost. They couldn't grow taller because low tide, they would have been exposed. And we're swimming around this thing. And it was literally as big as a house. When I realized this was one coral. wow! <laughs> this so-called reef actually yeah. was one Animal that had been living in this one spot for probably a thousand years or more, and it was huge. I mean, it was massive. It was unbelievable that one animal could get that big. Wow!
0: I thought I knew things about coral, but coral living for a thousand years—they
1: can live. They can theoretically live forever. (laughs) But that's another mystery that they have because
0: it's not like they have rings on the inside of a tree for coral.
1: Um, no. Some. 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 Yes. Because they grow slower at sometimes and faster in other times. And if you slice your skeleton and polish it flat and you look at it under a microscope or you take an x-ray of it, you can see density bands. The little skeletal components are are thicker in some places than others because some places are growing fast and some places are growing slow. But it's not clear if that's summer or winter. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound super precise. It's not super precise, but you can do it pretty well for a lot of species. Hmm. And it's, it's really a cool science when you do that. Interesting. But those animals, even if it's as big as a house, it's really thin. It's only, I don't know, half a centimeter in thickness. So it's an animal, a single animal with a million mouths. They say it's a colony. It's not a colony. Right. It's one animal. It's not like a colony of penguins. I've heard that a lot. It's one animal. With lots and lots of mouths, because if you're thin and you want to get big, you have to spread out like a sheet. If you spread out like a sheet, well, the end of you is far away from your mouth. So you make another mouth.
0: It's that simple.
1: It's that simple. And just beautiful animals. I spent a lot of time staring at them under microscopes, Hmm. specifically fluorescent microscopes, where you shine ultraviolet light and you're looking with a filter so you don't burn your eyes out through a microscope. And you're looking at all the beautiful fluorescent colors Hmm. or you shine blue light. And then you put a yellow filter on the microscope, so the blue is filtered out. And now you're looking at the green fluorescence from blue light. Or you shine green light, and you're looking at the red fluorescence. And that was actually my my PhD dissertation, was on the fluorescent proteins in corals.
0: I wondered about that because of your other fluorescence project where you made glow-in-the-dark fish. Oh,
1: yes, yes. Yes, exactly.
0: Like, I wonder how you, I wondered how you got to that.
1: Well, I was, I was working on the coloration of these animals because ecology talks about weird things like coloration patterns and things. I was trying to put numbers on it and I com- consistently failed. So my dissertation had three chapters of nonsense where I did lots and lots. of It wasn't nonsense. I did lots and lots of experiments and I proved nothing. I could not get them to change color. I couldn't get the color to be brighter or dimmer. In fact, one time I walked into our invertebrate museum, which I, at the end of a hallway where my office was, and I went in there I talked to a lady. I said, do we have any deep water corals? She goes, oh, yeah. They had some that they had an expedition back in the 1930s. They had dredged up some corals from two miles in depth.
0: So if we're talking about 1930s corals, I'm assuming they're long since dead.
1: Yeah, they're in alcohol. They're sitting in a literally a pickle jar mm. with a metal lid since the 1930s. Well, and I might have been the water. first person who had open up that jar. Oh. And I took a syringe and I pulled some of the stuff out and I looked at it and the, the alcohol was green. These things had green fluorescent protein in them. And I put it in a spectrofluorometer and had the exact same signature as my green fluorescent protein from shallow water corals. So I said, oh, this has nothing to do with sunlight. So the biggest hypothesis, these things are green, they're absorbing these harsh colors of light, ultraviolet light, and are fluorescing it at longer, safer wavelengths. It's photoprotective, everybody said. But then I said, then how come this animal that lived two miles in depth, has got so much in it that it actually colored the liquid that has been sitting in for 70 years. It's not photoprotective. I never found out what the function was. I listed about 17 different hypotheses of what this stuff might be for and 17 contradictions. And so I'm, you know, I'm a very frustrated scientist, but I'm working on this stuff. I'm doing chemical extractions and I showed that it was a protein. That's bizarre because we're made of proteins and we don't glow in the dark. (laughs) We're not fluorescent. You had to put, you know, go to a rave or disco or something. You had to wear fluorescent makeup or clothing to, to, when they turn a black light on for you to look funny colors. Laser tag. Oh yeah. Laser tag. Yeah. But we don't do that. But all the cnidarians, the corals and jellyfish and the sea pens and all those weird stingy things in the ocean, they all glow. Oh, some of them are like a firefly. Some of them produce light
0: oh wow that's that's a whole new level i didn't realize it could go that far
1: oh man i remember as a kid on long island at summer camp it's funny because we're only a mile away from the local nuclear power plant interesting but we're we're fishing at night (laughs) and you cast the line and you can see the your fishing line going down in the water glowing green oh that's fun i think this is from diatoms bioluminescent diatoms one time i had a massive poison ivy on my leg because I'm stupid, and I didn't think of stay away from the poison ivy, Carter. You're gonna have to go to the hospital again. But I had this massive, my whole entire thigh was one giant poison ivy thing. My friend also, he also got poison ivy, and we were camp counselors. And the camp director said salt is good for boys. After you put your boys to sleep, because all the counselors, there was always one counselor on duty, and we everyone else could leave. We went for a swim, and so we swam out to the platform, and he's in front of me. His name was Rob too. Okay, Rob, you're glowing. It's like what? And he stops. He goes, No, you're glowing. And we looked at each other. We could see our legs and our feet because the water was full of, I think, diatoms. And so what we did is we swam out to the swimming platform. We jumped off and we watched each other go Poof, in the water. And you could literally see two hands and then bubbles. Oh, it's <laughs> the coolest thing. And so now I know there's some bays in Puerto Rico still that glow. They're bioluminescent bays. There's so many bioluminescent organisms there. The water's literally lit from inside.
0: So... When you say diatoms, did you tell us what diatoms is? But when you brought it up in that context, you had just talked about your fishing line and lure. So I thought diatoms was like a brand of...
1: (laughs) A diatom is a little alga and it has a little crusty shell and they're, they're tiny and they're beautiful under microscope too. And some of them are bioluminescent. Some jellyfish are bioluminescent. They produce light, but the light they produce is not green. It's blue. But they have this protein that absorbed blue light and fluoresces it at green light. It's called the green fluorescent protein. And that's what my PhD dissertation was on. So there was a guy working on fish and he had green fish. And he's in a, a building across from my building. And someone said, hey, you need to go talk to that guy. So why? Because he he's got green fish, like fluorescent green fish. Well, I'm working on fluorescent green. I learned that that protein he was using came out of a jellyfish. I'm working on green from corals. Corals and jellyfish are similar. And so I went over there and we started talking, and he said, This is the same stuff I'm working on, but corals are also red and yellow and blue. <laughs> oh, so he got very interested. And so we worked up a protocol where, even though we knew that other people were looking for these things, and it would take them about two years, we said 24 hours. And we approached the uh, technology department at, at UM, the patent office. And we said, we want a grant. We can do this work and we can blow the doors off everybody else. And that's where my grant came from, the long shot. That's why I became a geneticist. Wow. And it was the best thing ever because I'm a good geneticist. I was a lousy ecologist. (laughs) I'm a good geneticist. I love genetics. Nice. And genetics I'm doing now, I like even more because computer programming genetics. But back then it was extracting DNA, purifying DNA. What we did was... We reasoned that if there's an animal that's glowing under ultraviolet or blue light, it must be producing a lot of green fluorescent protein. If it's producing a lot of green fluorescent protein, we don't know where that gene is in the genome of the coral, but he must be producing lots of messenger RNA because the messenger RNA is what is translated into protein. So we said, oh, let's extract all the RNA from the coral and throw the DNA away. And then we reverse transcribe the RNA into DNA, put that DNA into bacteria at random. All the RNAs float around in that in that coral are now in E. coli. And we put it on a plate and put it in an incubator. And we said, if we're right, one out of 10,000 colonies on that plate will be green. We were wrong. It was one out of 1,000. Oh. So we had a you know a plate and you do a dilution where you, ha- you know you have a lot of bacteria in this one and you divide, it 10, divide it by 10, divide it by 10, divide it by 10. And by the time you're at the end, there's like no bacteria. And somewhere in the middle, you have a plate with individual dots where they're not right next on top of each other. And if you have an individual dot, you can actually take a little needle and pick it up and then spread it on another plate and you have a plate that's a complete clone of one bacteria.
0: So would there be a practical application for making bacterias bioluminescent?
1: The green fluorescent protein family has turned into one of the most important tools in biotechnology because it's a protein you can see. So it is very practical. It's incredibly practical, incredibly important. When I was leaving, they were taking the fish that we had made and they're trying to develop a cancer model where if the fish got cancer, the tumor would be green. And when the fish was cured, the green would go away. (sighs) So it was visual genetics, which is unlike anything else. It was very difficult to do. And I don't know if they actually succeeded because it was 2003. But they had attached the protein to uh, two different genes. One was called a heat shock protein, where under stress, this protein turns on. If you put the fish in water and warm it up, stress the fish somehow it would turn green the problem is it was always a little bit green but they also got it next to a gene it was called the metallothionine it's a a protein that grabs toxic metals zinc cadmium things like that and what they did was if you had a fish in a fish tank that wasn't green and you added some zinc into it the fish would turn green oh that is neat cool but it took a long time for it to be ungreen because oh. once you have protein, it's there and it takes a long time for it to go away. So it wasn't an instant on-off switch, but they're working on stuff like that. And it was really cool. But I also said, well, okay, now we have the green. Let's go for the red. Let's do the same thing. So I had been in an aquarium uh, store. On that, that note,
0: yeah. And something I know about lights of different colors is that green light is brightest, the brightest of all the colored lights. Yes. So for I know this is really nerdy. <laughs>
1: Do you know why it's the brightest? Of course I, you do. I, I'm
0: going gonna, I'm gonna to sound really nerdy for noting about this. Nerd out, buddy. All right, Star Wars. We all know. You got your blue lightsabers, red lightsabers, green lightsabers. And then one day, out of the blue, there's a purple lightsaber that just one Jedi Knight has and nobody else does. But then in some of the movies, they look white. And then other blue lightsabers look more blue than others. Okay. You ever heard of these things called, like, uh, what are they called? Uh, Dragon Con, Comic Con. and Yeah,
1: yeah there's a massive one in Atlanta every year.
0: Okay, when you go, you got to be in costume. And well, most you've got to have town. a lightsaber.
1: Oh, you got to. Okay, okay. So this they
0: means should. that there is a business for finely crafted lightsabers.
1: Oh, man, I missed out on my calling.
0: And they can be in, what do they call them, uh, like aircraft grade metals okay used on jet airplanes okay indestructible housing for attachable detachable blades okay and come in any color you want and i remember discussing this stuff with park sabers i think the guy's name was jack or jason park okay so parksabers.com like over 10 years ago okay so tell me about your lights and your blades and he explained that the green was the brightest and then it went down from there to the darker colors like purple.
1: But I, it wasn't brighter because it has more power. You, right. It right. was brighter because of the biology.
0: But I didn't understand that. I don't even know if Park told me that. So, but I just knew like there was green, then you know, yellow, then orange, blue, and then reds and purples. It just got darker and darker as it went.
1: It's because the human eye is most sensitive to green light. And look at our world. Our world is green.
0: I didn't even really think about that. God gave
1: us a green sensitive eyeball because there's so much green in the world.
0: Interesting. So does that mean that of the other colors, we could look at a list of what colors our eyes are most sensitive to, uh, to least sensitive to? Oh yeah, absolutely. So what are, do you know what a few of the other top colors are and what order they are?
1: No, it's green is the peak and it it falls away towards the blue and it falls away towards the red until it disappears into infrared or ultraviolet. You can't see those colors. Now, birds and bees might be able to see some of the ultraviolet colors that we can. Right. But that's just where our eyes are tuned for. Wow. Even though we have three different color receptors, the green one is the strongest color receptor. And interestingly, we have the green fluorescent proteins, and green penetrates furthest in water. Red is absorbed very quickly. One time I was I was diving, and I was about 60 or 70 feet, and I put my hand on a rock, and all of a sudden, Wham! ouch and i hollered bruh, 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 underwater. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I'm shaking my hand i'm, I'm bruh, bruh, bruh. i don't think yeah. i was swearing but i was hollering really loud and i looked at my finger and there's black goo coming out of my finger and i'm like oh, i've been poisoned i've been poisoned <laughs> and i'm hollering and it hurt And I'm, wait 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 hold up carter don't be dumb you're 60 feet there's no red light at 60 feet you're looking at your blood and your blood is black <gasps> oh that's creepy oh yeah <laughs> And so I looked over the side of the rock. I'm like, what? got me? I'm looking, I'm looking. And I see something about the size of a ah, quarter, maybe a little bigger. It's a mantis shrimp. And what I'm looking at is, is the top of his burrow. He's, he might have been four or five inches long, but he digs into the sand and he sits there with his head right on the edge and he flattens his claws out and over the hole. And so it looks like it's flat. And so I picked up a, a stick or something that I found and I kind of poked at him and I watched how fast he moved. They have the fastest known, like, punch of any creature in the world. The pistol shrimp moves his hammer so fast, it actually breaks the speed of sound and makes a flash of light. The mantis shrimp can do this too. Okay. But the pistol shrimp, you can hear. It, it would probably sound like a gun. Uh, yeah. It, pop pop pop. But the mantis shrimp just hurts. <laughs> oh, man, I was like, you little stinker. Oh, you got me. And I was like, okay, you're just doing what you're doing. I didn't and they can see like
0: that, a but, lot more colors than we
1: can. Uh, and they have uh, oh, uh, uh, seven color receptors, something like that. More colors than we do. And they can swivel their eyes independently. What did you do to that mantis shrimp? Nothing. I just watched <sighs> them for a little while. And it, I was, I, my, my anger cooled off and my, my yeah. pain subsided a little bit. I
0: uh, wonder what Dr. Robert Carter tasted like. We could ask him.
1: <laughs> no, he didn't get a piece of me. He just stabbed me. That's all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. Back to the, the color story. Red. I had bought a red soft coral. It's about as big as a silver dollar, and it's this squishy red thing. It's like a mushroom. In fact, it's called a mushroom coral, and it doesn't have a skeleton, but it's really leathery. And I bought it at an aquarium store in Miami. And usually, I'd walk into an aquarium store and I said, "Hey, this specimen doesn't look so good. Can I can I buy that for you for a dollar?" And they're like, sure. And I got all the, and I bring it back to my my aquaculture facility and nurse them back to health. <laughs> anyway, nice. sorry guys, you got scammed. Anyway, um, I had this red thing. And I took a razor blade and I cut out a piece of pie and I chopped it up and I extracted the RNA and I put it into E. coli. And this took a little a wa- little longer to develop than the green did. But 48 hours later, I had one red spot on a plate and it was like lipstick red. Oh. And my mouth is hanging open. I'm holding this plate in my hand saying, this is a million dollars.
0: Oh! No joke.
1: It would have been a million dollars, but I was holding a paper in my other hand that had come out that day. Red fluorescent protein. No way. Some guy in Moscow, like Russia in the 90s, you know, impoverished Moscow, Yeah. went down to his aquarium store and bought a little red soft coral that probably came from the same Indonesian village that mine had come from two years prior. And he'd been working on that for all that time.
0: <laughs> and the genetic
1: sequence, when I sequence my gene, the genetic sequence is exactly the same. You discovered it a lot same, faster than I A whole did. lot faster. And oh so, oh, well, at least I was right. I was right. Huh? That's right. <laughs> so I graduated. With, yeah, see, this paper confirms I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the coolest thing. And to work in a field that was exploding, I mean, all these papers being published on, on fluorescent proteins and how important they became, I wouldn't have been able to do all that work. And I would have been very frustrated with my PhD because all the people say, what does this do? What does that do? And I wouldn't have known because I'm just one guy. But all these other papers are being published. I'm publishing papers in the field too. And I was in a very comfortable position considering that I don't believe in evolution. And I didn't while I was in graduate school. Actually, I went to graduate school uncertain, but they unconvinced me about evolution within about six months. Hmm. Interestingly. Anyway, so I'm there in a very awkward position and I found out myself in the perfect field. Something that grew really quickly, something I was really good at, and something that was really interesting and really exciting, and no one knew about it. Because a little secret for people out there who might want to get into science yeah, go for it. Get yourself your bachelor's, get yourself a master's, get yourself a PhD. But the secret of getting a PhD is when you get to the point where no one on earth can tell you that you're wrong, that's when they give you your degree. And so what happens is you learn all the stuff about marine biology, and then coral reef ecology, and then Caribbean corals, and then Coral proteins and coral genetics, and the green fluorescent protein from these two, three species that I studied. I knew more than anyone else in the world about almost nothing. Mm. And so you drill down, you focus to this very specific little thing. Wow. And when you become the expert, that's when they say, Congratulations, you passed the test, and they hand you the piece of paper.
0: Well, that's how you advance science. That's how you push the world forward.
1: (laughs) One little discovery at a time. But I was bored stiff. Even though it was exciting and I got to scuba dive a lot and I mean, it was a good life. But doing DNA extractions again and again and growing E. coli and using mm. the autoclave and and it was mind numbing. And my brain was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go insane. And so finally I got done. You know, I
0: all this time I was just listening to your story. And I was realizing there's not much that we had in common with our education. I I was home educated and then I pursued a couple of different apprenticeships. I did some things outside of high school. It was fun. But one of the things that arose was going into filmmaking. I knew at that point that I would never go into filmmaking if I had to do it the old school, if I had to use real film and cut film and get into the chemicals and measure tape and splice these things together and develop film and sync it to sounds and nurse and baby film. I would never have gone into film. The turning point was I was about 14 and Apple was saying, oh, we can make movies with our computers now. (laughs) And it negated all of the old school technologies, which were like laboratory experiments and systems. And yeah, what
1: was the the first movie that came out? It was all digital.
0: I don't remember. Well, there were several films that went back into the mid nineties, but they were mostly film festival films. I know that George Lucas was responsible for pioneering these for bigger budget films.
1: Uh, yes. Digital
0: cameras technology. I, he, you know, he's the guy who created not just Star Wars, but also the companies that made Hollywood special effects and technologies. Yeah. So they made a company just for sound, and then that sound company spun off multiple products and other sound engineering companies. But um, I think it was probably. I know they were talking about it when they were doing episode one, but I know episode two, Star Wars, was Attack of the
1: Clones. Mm-hmm. Oh, but so that, that was the that, first big budget Hollywood movie that was just all digital. Yeah. That explains a lot as far as what we're seeing on screen.
0: Yeah, it is certainly changed a lot because of that. And there were other films that were big too, but not as big as Star Wars. I mean, you can't get bigger than that. No, but that wasn't what, yeah, like 2002. Wow. Digital was what convinced me I could go into filmmaking and I was like, okay, I can do this. I will. I just will. Cause I know it's going to be so much easier than fiddling with all the chemicals.
1: Well, I'm glad you did mm-hmm. because Me you've, too. Done, you've done some good work.
0: I, I couldn't have gone into audio engineering either. I, I couldn't be doing a podcast if we were still doing it the way that a lot of scientists do it in the lab.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, like my work in genetics now, it's all digital. I don't extract DNA. That's all done by machines anyway. I, I don't, what I do is I, as long as I have an internet connection, I have access to databases of DNA sequences and I can download them and run computer programs and do analyses.
0: You know, I'm I've never thought data. about that all the way through. But I, now that you mention that, I remember hearing you talk about various things that you are currently working on. And I'm like, well, how are you doing these experiments? There's not like a lab. You don't have a lab at home. You don't have a lab at the office. Nope. Wow.
1: Hmm. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a paper that came out. They just did 5,000 full human genomes from Singapore. You said 5 or 5,000? 5,000 brand new, high quality, Whoa! (laughs) just from Singapore. Wow. So we are swimming in data. There's so much data, no one knows what to do. And it's a really cool place to be in the world of genetics now. And it's cool to be someone who's a little bit contrarian to the standard way of thinking because there's some low-hanging fruit out there that we can pluck. Mm -hmm. Because not everyone's thinking the way I'm thinking. And we can look at it and say, wait a second, that's not supposed to be true. And boom, we take it on to, into our fold and say, this is our territory, guys. Either disprove us or take a hike. And it's really cool. And we've actually done some pretty significant uh, advances in science just because we think different. And I say we because I'm not alone. I'm working with several other people uh, in our little creation genetics group.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So what we got here is your career in the past as a marine biologist and how you got there. But we're right on the cusp of when you went into genetics, and I think that's where we got to stop for today.
1: Oh, okay,
0: yeah. So this is going to be another two parter. We're going to have to talk about genetics, biblical genetics. At that, All
1: right? So Adam and Eve, Noah's flood, Tower of yeah. Babel, but also how this, how people. you wound up
0: in genetics and what your research has been up to the present. Okay, it's it's really interesting stuff. I love this stuff, and it's it's interesting too how marine biology and genetics. I mean. I, I wouldn't have thought that how they could be paired together, but it, it, it's your career path. It's fascinating stuff.
1: My career path was laid out for me before I found it. Hmm. So someone out there who's like, I want to go into education. I want to be a scientist or I want to you know, get a high degree. What do I do? You know what I tell people? Go for it. See how far you get. You don't know what doors are going to open, but they're not going to open unless you go knocking. Mm-hmm. Just Go. Now, I don't want people to have, you know, $10,000 or $100,000 worth of student loans and no possible way to pay it back. So I wouldn't, I actually, I tell people, I'm going to, when I say, I'm going to be a biologist, I say, why? You want to flip burgers the rest of your life? <laughs> so you're at least going to get a master's degree. Don't waste your time by getting a degree in biology. It'll do nothing for you. Oh, interesting. I like, huh. you know, art history. Why would you, why are you going to do that? Yeah, it's interesting, but. How many art historians are there in the world? How, what's the job market? It's bad. You're going to be doing something different. So, okay, get a degree, fine. Go do something different, fine. But if you want to be a biologist, get a master's, get a PhD, hmm. if you can. But see, I had to, as a Christian, I had to resolve that I wasn't going to lie if someone asked me what I thought about you know, evolution or something like that. Not that you have to be you know, anti-evolution to be a Christian, but in, from my position, I said, I'm not going to lie, but I'm not going to volunteer. I had a goal. I wanted those three letters after my name. And I didn't want someone to unfairly target me or torpedo my chances. And so I never lied. Nobody ever asked. Nobody cared. (laughs) And as long as I was a good student and as long as I was, you know, seemed like I was towing the party line, I I wasn't lying to anybody. And I, you know, carefully crafted my answers in my my essay questions in classes. And my doctorate was difficult because they were demanding I do some evolutionary things in my doc my doctor so all i did was i said okay you want evolutionary stuff fine and i said here's all this evolutionary stuff and here's all the contradictions to all this evolutionary stuff what do i know i'm just a graduate student and i actually i didn't say it that way but i got compliments for those sections because it was a penetrating analysis and i wasn't just you know taking the evolution is true therefore evolution is true no i was saying yeah but check out this and how, how do we answer this and this is something to wrestle and it was worth really digging in and it was a lot of fun that's awesome So maybe that'll be another another episode. How do you survive graduate school or college if you don't believe what other people believe? Yeah. That's a a cool question.
0: An idea uh, related to that would be just a journey for the student to scientist. Yeah. And you could give great advice. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us on this quest. If you want to dig deeper into this episode's topics, you can find links to the articles and the like of anything that Rob has done in his career or he could refer to that would be of interest to you and the the bioluminescent fish and coral. Interesting stuff. Do you have a picture of such examples online that the audience can see some of your fish or corals or anything luminescent? That'd be great.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. We'll put them in the show notes.
0: So if you want to see those things, you can find them in the episode show notes At our website, that is nightowl.fm/slash equinox/slash 11 for this episode. And if it's more handy for you, you can also find the show notes, which were available with this episode, in your podcast app. If you want us to discuss a science topic that you have in mind, please tell Rob at Biblical Genetics on Facebook or YouTube, or you can send a tweet to podcast equinox and we'll get your idea in the queue. If you haven't already, Go to Dr. Robert Carter on YouTube and Facebook. Just look up Biblical Genetics and watch his latest and join the discussions. And you'll find me on Twitter. If you want to catch me, I'm at JCS Darnell. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to Equinox. Equinox